Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Hi, welcome to Mindspace. This is Jeff Boucher. I'm here with Maya St. Clair. And this week, we are going to talk to Jim Shooter. Uh, Jim Shooter is a name that uh, fans of Marvel Comics, readers of Marvel Comics have known for a long time, uh, especially if they grew up reading comics in the late 70s and early 80s, as I did. Um, it's, it, that's actually sort of the sweet spot for me um, of when I became a Marvel Comics reader. Uh, Jim Shooter was the uh, editor-in-chief of Marvel from 76 uh, till about, I think, 87. And um, uh, before that, he was a writer of notes. Uh, in fact, he, uh, Maya, it's amazing. He was a writer for DC Comics when he was 14 years old, which is- Yeah, uh, I saw that. It's crazy. Uh, you know, it's you read about Stan Lee writing comics when he was 17 and- uh, Joe Kubert drawing comics when he was 17 as well, I think. Um, but uh, to, to write a published comic book at age 14 and the comic books that he was writing when he was 14, I was reading. Uh, mm. I read them later as reprints, but specifically the Legion of Superheroes. He has really um, key stories there. And um, that's what I wanted to talk to him about today because uh, uh, we're going to do a deep dive into a particular character who was created in the 1960s called Pharaoh Lad, uh, who was a member of the Legion of Superheroes and was one of the first major characters who was killed off in comics with the intent to stay killed off. He wasn't hmm. immediately brought back or anything like that. He, he's existed famously as a dead character for many, many years while most comic characters uh, get reincarnated pretty quickly. Um, but more when you that, say when you say he's existed as a dead character for years, do you mean his death is discussed by others, you know, continuing in the timeline? Exactly. Uh, you yeah. know, I mean, he he um, was introduced in a story uh, and uh, a short time later, there was this larger epic story, multiple issue story. Um, and in that he sacrifices himself uh, to save the universe. Um, and it was shocking at the time because the, he he died in the battle and that that didn't really happen superheroes if they, if they did get killed in battle they'd be brought back mm -hmm. in a short time, a relatively short period of time the big he sounds like he was a young character too like yeah well, the Legion of superheroes yeah. all are teenagers they're all teenagers Ooh. yeah yeah that's rough the, the far future yeah and uh, they represent the planets uh each one is from a different planet and uh, it's kind of like the Peace Corps with the kind of a vibe of the UN put together with the Green Lantern Corps. It's kind of a whole uh, amalgam of different things. But the fascinating thing about Pharaoh Lad, too, is in hindsight, it, the 
possible publishing history that that character could have represented because now we find out Jim Shooter has said that uh, the character was black and that um, the editors at DC Comics weren't comfortable with a black superhero. So they changed his features to make him more anonymous and, and, uh, and also just sort of a, almost literally a blank face almost, you know, which I think is really sort of interesting. Uh, this would have been, if that's true, then Pharaoh Lad would have been the first black superhero in mm-hmm. comics, major comics. So he would have predated the Black Panther. Marvel also had Falcon, uh, first African-American superhero. DC had Jon Stewart. Um, but this character, Pharaoh Lad, would have predated all of them. So it, it, if that's a lost chapter of comic book history, that's kind of what I was hoping to talk to him about today. You know, what kind of context did it have in the world? Was he trying to send a message? Was this, you know, uh, that's the, that's, uh, the particulars I've been interested in. I first heard about this, um, I would say, uh, in the 80s, the 1980s, that this character was supposed to be Black, but it was a... Um, it was a very vague story and also not often discussed. And when it was, it wasn't discussed in depth. So I don't really know the particulars of it. So I'm, I'm coming into today with more questions than answers, which is always nice. Suffice to say that if you think about the history of Marvel Comics, you think about Stan Lee, you think about Jack Kirby, but not too far down that list, you also think about Jim Shooter. Um, also, he wrote Secret War, which uh, was a big initiative yeah. that uh, Marvel Comics had and uh, that may or may not be reaching the screen um, in the years ahead. That's a very long introduction, but we are going to get to the interview coming up here, and um, it should be a good one. So uh, welcome to MySpace, and here's Jim Shooter. You know, I, I noticed you have Captain America over your shoulder. I have Captain America over my shoulder. Yeah, this is a, a drawing that Jack Kirby gave me. It's really great it's huge <laughs> i can tell i, I can yeah. tell uh that's fascinating that's it's signed on the bottom to jim a good friend so nice. it's really special to me oh my gosh of course that yeah. must be huge yeah. that's fantastic this this one stan lee signed uh in front of me but i always thought in my head how funny is it that stan lee is signing a jack kirby cover like you know no um, that was captain america was one of stan's favorite characters stan Absolutely. had no thing about that it's the silver surfer was such a which is all Jack. He created it cold. Stan put words in his mouth. But uh, the Silver Surfer was one of Stan's favorite characters. In fact, when I was at Marvel and I was the editor in chief, I was I had Stan's old job. Yeah. You know, if he wanted work, he had to call me. Uh, that's surreal. I know. But but uh, um, he used to ask me. Uh, he's don't let anyone else write the Surfer. He says I want to be the only one who writes the Surfer. Wow. And I mean, he loved it and loved it and loved it. And um, one time I uh, had this one artist who just held bent to draw the surfer in this Avengers uh, it was a little um, uh, two issue story. And uh, and I kept saying, no, Stan doesn't want it, you know, and I, I don't care if he's in charge or not. I'm not doing it, you know. And so uh, uh, he said, well, why don't you ask him? So I called Stan in California. And I said, I got this artist who wants to, he, he wants us to use Silver Surfer in a story so he can draw the Silver Surfer. And he said, Jim, I really wish you wouldn't do that. And I said, no, that's what I told him. I said, he's, you know, on me about the asking you. And 
And I said, so just to humor him, I called you, you know? And he says, oh, he says, who's writing the story? And I said, well, I am. He said, you can do it. <laughs> That's great. So uh, I did, he liked what I did. And then he called me and he said, look, all right, I've been psychotic about that, you know? Okay, go ahead and use it, you know? Um, he said, uh, try to get good writers. <laughs> That's and great. I said, I said, all right, so we got Engelhardt. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. And then he came yeah. back and he did the one with Mobius, of course. Yeah, well, know. yes, yes, of course, yes. Which was wonderful, which was oh, really yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I, I, love, I love Mobius. Great guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting, the Silver Surfer, you know, he's got that such a tragic and kind of forlorn. Um, I think he came out right, right around the same time the Beatles did Eleanor Rigby. And I always thought that he was the Eleanor Rigby of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> okay <laughs> all right <laughs> it's kind of random i know um but speaking of random i get kind of caught up on on uh parts of comic book history and one of the things i've always been curious about is pharaoh lad you know i read okay the, uh you know you started writing comics when you were 14 years old 13 um, 13 13 yeah. and um i think you had that story published when you were 14 um, yeah they didn't start coming out until you know i was 14 but because uh, that in those days everything was on time it was a long lead time sure so sure. uh and also the thing is the first story i wrote which introduced Farrellad, among others um mm -hmm. it was uh written in i think about april 1965 something like that i was 13 uh and uh the editor um you know he liked it uh, i found out later uh and he wrote me a nice letter said this is this is nice said, why don't you send us another one and so i sent him a two-parter so uh -huh. now he had three issues and after three issues that he liked he was convinced that maybe i was worth giving a try so he wouldn't he would he didn't want to you know pay me <laughs> yeah. like hire me until after i'd done enough stuff to convince him that i was worth doing it and you know it wasn't a one-shot uh, flash in a pan kind of thing yeah. So after the third one, he called me up and he said, he said, uh, we're going to buy these and publish them. We're going to want to use you as a regular writer. And I said, oh, OK. He didn't know how old I was. I, I lived 400 miles away. And <laughs> uh, yeah. And then and then when he finally found out how old I was, uh, uh, I, he called me, he wanted me to come up to New York. He said, we'll put you up in a hotel. You spend a week here, you know, you fly up here. And I'm wondering how that's going to go, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, so I hesitated and he said, how old are you? And I said, <laughs> well, I just turned 14. And he said, put your mother on the phone. <laughs> so my mother, yeah, she was on board, but she had to actually come with me on my first business trip. I would hope so, early, yeah. But... <laughs> yeah. I would think so. Uh, yeah. That's tremendous. Well, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't know what the editing process was like, but I, as a reader at the time, uh, I read it, I read them in reprint form um, in the 70s. But as a, as a young reader and as a reader now, uh, they're so polished uh, and, and the, it's the, the death of Feral Lab is a very affecting story for me as a Thank kid, you. you know, a, a very affecting uh, incident. Um, you, you were very precocious to be able to do that at that, that age. Well, I was desperate. I mean, my family needed the money and I, well, when I set out to do it, I wasn't just scooping around and having fun. Hey, I'll make a comic book, you know, I. I, I studied comics between uh, when the time I was 12 and 13. I actually studied them, sat there with a notebook, made yeah. notes and stuff, um, trying to figure out how to do it. 
and I liked Stan's comics, and I thought that DCs were kind of dumb. Yeah. And uh, so I figured it's if I can stiff. learn what to do from Stan, then I can maybe sell some to these guys. Oh. And that's why I sent it to DC. I knew I couldn't write as well as Stan. So I sent my first submissions to DC, hoping I could find a book on which I could make a difference. When I thought that book was The Legion, because just tons of potential and it just left it lying all over the ground. And, and so anyway, I, it actually, my plan worked to everyone's surprise but mine, you know, because when you're 13, you think you know what you're doing, right? You know, clearly. Uh, but, <laughs> but anyway, I was good enough to pass the cut. And as far as the editing went, Mort hardly ever touched a word. He never, uh, there were no rewrites, nothing like that. In five years, I rewrote exactly four pages for him. And the reason was that he, he approved something in the plot and then he changed his mind. So, okay. Yeah. And working with Kurt Swan, uh, among others, but, you know, uh, yes. you know, a, a comic book legend, uh, the longest oh, Superman artist. And Great. Guy. Now, the Marvel method of doing comics uh, has is a very different approach than DC was doing at this time. You were writing scripts that were telling, uh, you know, panel by panel what should be there. As, as I wasn't even writing scripts. I, I didn't, when I started out to write this stuff, I didn't know there, what a script looked like. I, I didn't know there was a script. Right. And so what I did was I tried to make what I sent in look as much like a comic book as I could. I see. I designed a cover. I drew the them with the cover you know yeah. so uh so then on the interior i drew every panel i mean mm -hmm. i wasn't you know professional artist at that point but I, I i got down the idea so that they know they knew what it was supposed to blocked it out supposed to be so so even though my drawings were a little rough um the fact is the guys followed them mm -hmm. i'm talking about hall of famers like kurt swan and wally wood followed the kids layouts yeah, you know, and every once in a while I'd screw something up, and then they they'd fix it, and they tell me, "It's hey, Jim, no, do this." You know, oh, okay. I I paid attention to every word they said. You know, and and um, how is it uh, talking to somebody like Wally Wood? I mean, here's a guy like yeah, a life like uh, no, when he found out you were fourteen, like or thirteen. Yeah, what he was, what he was funny. He he actually gave me my first credit they ever got because in those days DC did not put your name on the book. Your dad, there were no credits. Mm. on dc books or at least on mort's um at any rate because uh, mort would tell you it's not about you it's about superman you know all right but woody used to sign his name on the splash page of everything he worked on and they wouldn't white it out if kurt swan signed his name they'd white it out okay wow. if anyone else signed their name they'd white it out but they left woody alone and the, the, the jokey theory is that's because he got a 38 in a shoulder holster, uh -huh. which he did. Yeah. Um, ask, ask Zach, he worked with him for a while. Uh -huh. And, uh, uh, but I think the real reason had more to do with this guy's Hall of Fame. This is, you know, he's, even then he was already like all time great legend, yeah. you know. I mean, so I think they just didn't mess with him. They didn't want to piss him off because they wanted him to do another book. And, uh, um, and the other guys were more mellow about it. Kurt couldn't care less. Right. You know? And, and uh, anyway, so when I did Captain Action, because I did the little layouts for him, the first, the first two issues, right. I did little layouts. Woody not only put art by Wood, he put story by Jim Shooter. Wow. And, because he hated writers. He thought writers were idiots. But yeah. I wasn't a writer. 
I was an artist because I did yeah. the layouts, you know. Oh, so, uh, yeah. So I, I, I was, you know, he, you talked already about writers. He just thought writers were blithering idiots. They, they yeah. asked for you to know, draw a guy answering the the phone while he's lighting his pipe. You know, how, how do you yeah, draw? Yeah. You know, <laughs> and because uh, they're writers, they don't. And uh, but the fact that I laid everything out, if I drew it crudely, it could be drawn. Yeah. You know. Anyway, that's amazing. You know, speaking of artists. Uh, jump forward for a second just because of recent headlines uh, we were talking just before you came on but uh uh some sad news from the comics world one of the titans of excuse the pun one of the titans of uh the industry uh george Perez, uh dealing with some a really grim prognosis what a professional what a what a what a talent and what a nice guy a great man he really was he's i knew him really well i mean when we worked together in the Avengers, I was at his house sometimes and went to his parties. I, you know, hung out with him. And we really got to be good friends. Um, and, uh, you know, always remain such. I mean, he, I have a drawing he, he gave me in 1978. I still have it. I have it in my little show and tell that I take to conventions. Everybody's, you know, people keep saying, do you know what that's worth? And I said, yeah, it's priceless to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's worth what you would sell it for, and that's not going to happen. So it doesn't matter. No, no, I'm taking that to the grave. <laughs> you know, one of the things I he he started, I want to say around '78, '79, uh, if I if I remember right. Um, a little earlier. A little earlier. Okay. Yeah, I think maybe '76. Um, okay. '75, '76. Um, oh wow. Okay. And uh, you know, right around that time is I don't know why I keep making musical analogies in my head, but I always thought of him as the Eddie Van Halen. Of, of comics because they had it was so polished and clean yeah. but powerful and crowd pleasing and virtue he was a virtuoso and detailed and, and, the, the, and the, the effort in it was incredible yeah it was like a guitar solo you know uh so yeah. i always thought of him as the eddie van halen of uh, oh, yeah. if it makes yeah. any sense but uh um what maybe uh one or two of the things that you remember doing with george some of those the issues that uh, you had i know you collaborated numerous times. yeah we did we did a couple we did a bunch of avengers issues together yeah, yeah and uh, of course i edited everything he was doing so uh and i was always involved in it so i'm, I'm always talking to sometimes he'd throw you a curveball <laughs> <laughs> I was writing this Avengers story and he wanted to have a lot of characters. I'm like, okay, fine. And he just out of the blue draws in the two gun kid. <laughs> like, what am I going to do with the two gun kid? Yeah. But uh, I mean, you know, but I found a way to make it work. See, the thing is, even if you do that to you, it, 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 it was never a clinker. It was good because it was George, you know, so yeah. you, then you'd have to deal with it. And yeah. one of the best times was um, uh, we, I had this story where the Avengers are hunting for this robot. Jocasta and sure. and um, they have all various ways of trying to trace her and they finally uh, trace her to a hiding place now that's in the in the in the uh, plot I don't remember what I said was the hiding place but but I, I gave a location and George said to me he says is, is it okay if she hides out in the cloisters and the cloisters is like a convent that's an ancient building that was moved over here stone by stone from I think France um, yeah uh a lot long ago in this convent there and 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 uh uh i said why he's because i want to draw the cloisters i said done you know we're okay we're doing it 
So anyway, uh, he has the Avengers track her to the cloisters and he has, uh, what do they do? They knock on the door, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and the mother superior comes to the door and he draws the mother superior talking and he has the beast talking to her. I didn't specify. He had the beast talking to her. And in his margin note, he wrote, wouldn't it be great if he spoke to her in Latin? Okay. okay. So I wrote what had to be said. And I, I, I found a Berlitz school that taught Latin. And I had them translate, pay them to translate. Yeah. And I, I tried to craft it so that even if you couldn't read Latin, you knew what you know, he was yeah. asking and you knew what her reply was. And from things that other people said, you got the drift. You, you didn't have to know what that meant, but, but it, you, could, you could understand. You could feel the contours. Yeah. And, and so, so anyway, uh, when he, I was, he was in the office when he was... Uh, when that book came out, we used to get, we called the bundle every every uh, I don't know one day a week we get everything that had been printed that week uh, the, or earlier that week, and uh, um, everybody got it you know staff freelancers everybody. So George got his bundle and the the new Avengers was in it, so he's reading it you know, and he came to that scene I swear he almost fell off his chair. <laughs> I said you want to try for Chinese next time, pal. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, no, I mean, that's how we got along, though, because, you know, he was, you know, he'd do some, he'd throw me curveballs and, you know, I'd try to hit him. Yeah. Yeah. And always aspirational, you know, like, oh, uh, yes. I was always trying to go one step farther, you know, just, just trying to do better than we deserve. But during your, your watch at Marvel, um, so many of the things I love uh, came out. So we're going to talk about that. But I want to get back to Pharaoh Lab because I did tell you that's what we're going to talk about. Um, so you're writing for DC, uh, uh, age 13, um, published at 14 and you, uh, have this idea you want to introduce some characters and you mentioned, uh, that there was a group of them. Uh, yeah, it was uh, Princess Projecta, right? Projectra, Karate Kid, Karate Kid, and then the bad guy was Nemesis Kid. All the Legionnaires said kid or boy or something like that. Yeah, lad, boy. And so, uh, I, like. Call, I had this one called Pharaoh Lab, um, and you know I I, I, uh, I wanted I, the reason I did that is because DC Comics like they almost never had the new characters. I mean you know I think that's one of the reasons why uh, Flash and Green Lantern were popular because John Broom and and uh, uh, the other guy uh, you know they would come up with yeah. the Mirror Master or Rod the Gorilla or you know I mean like there was a parade of villains there. But like Superman hadn't had a new villain forever, you right, know. Still doesn't. And the Legion was always, you know, the time trapper or some throwaway character. And, and uh, so I, uh, I thought, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm trying to sell this, yeah. you know. So I know maybe it'll impress him if I introduce some new characters, like Karate Kid and the other. And uh, apparently it did. So, um, but Farrellad was one of them. Yeah. And did you know? Uh, I've seen different things on this. Did you know when you introduced him that he would become a martyr uh, for the universe? No, I did not. But uh, when I introduced him, uh, you want the whole story? Please. Okay. Um, okay, I was born in the 50s. That's the other side <laughs> of the watershed. All right. And and so as I'm coming of age, coming the age of reason, that's when all this great stuff started happening. Martin Luther King and yeah you know, the women's rights and, you know, everybody was, you know, like, we, that was the watershed. That's where sure. it started. And 
And so I'm, I'm young, I'm idealistic, I'm, you know, a teenager, I'm in high school. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and, you know, and tragically hip, you know, uh, <laughs> so, so, so I wanted to uh, um, introduce uh, a character that was, there were like, they're in the Legion, they're, they're told white people, you know, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, not one green so much, one, but I mean, DC <laughs> Comics, it was all white people. And I, yeah. so I wanted to introduce a black character and I, I thought of a good way to do that. I thought of a good way to do that. And so when, when I designed Farrell, I designed all the characters. I right. always did those character sketches for everything. And I designed all the covers, uh, you know, anyway. So when I was designing Farrell, I deliberately had a mask and he was intended to have gloves, but the colorist always colored hands flesh. Uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, um, what I wanted to do was I wanted to have down the road a little ways, have a scene. See, I was going to establish that, that the costume was, was armor. It was to help protect him. Even though he became metallic, you know, having a layer of armor over him was a good idea. So uh, it was a functional mask. It wasn't, you know, because he was scarred in an accident. So I was going to have him take the mask off and be a black guy. Ah. and have no one say a word nobody bats an eye why would they bat an eye we got a blue person we got an orange person we got a green person who cares nobody I, this is the future they got it yeah. figured out by then you know so i was going to have it be a non-event just it was nothing never not even mentioned just just you know have to pull the mask off he's black that big deal you know That's and uh and and that was my plan and so uh we're coming, to, uh, in, I was like the, in three or four issues into it. And uh, I told my editor, I thought I better tell him, you know, I mean, I don't want to, you know, like spring it on him. I want. So I, I told him, I said, this is what my plan is. And he says, no, you're not doing that. I said, why not? He said, if you have a black character, we'll lose our distribution in the South. Wow. I said, what? He said, we'll lose all the distributors in the South to stop carrying all DC comics. No, we're not doing that. Uh, so anyway, I also was working on this big story, Barrel Lab was gonna be in it, where I thought, I kept thinking like, if these guys are going on these dangerous missions all the time, doesn't somebody get hurt once in a while? Doesn't somebody get killed once in a while? You know? And so I intended to have this tremendous menace and one of them wasn't coming home, okay? And, um, and so when it, I couldn't do what I wanted to do with Farallad, I said, well, then let, let's, uh, let me at least give him an honorable death, hmm. you know, but something, you know, people will remember. But do you so that's, gonna, that's why you, I chose him. Did you I, think I, he I, would die? I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, did no, it's you okay. Think if, um, when you were playing on him to have the black reveal, um, at that point, he wasn't going to no he was do. going to be around forever I no see. he was but when they wouldn't let me do that then you i said well i know he's black and he's going to have an honorable death you uh -huh. know and and so that was my plan and i wanted to keep him dead by the way because they had killed lightning lad once and brought him back oh he's alive again he was dead but he got better you know a couple issues later he comes back i thought no dead should be dead if the guy is dead that's it yeah and so the a couple issues after I did the death of Farallad. I showed his ghost. <laughs> yeah. Okay. See, See yeah. he's really dead. And then there were a couple issues. There was a, an adult Legion story. Like what happens when the Legionnaires are older? Yeah. And so I 
he was his statue was in all of fallen heroes he's right. still dead 20 years later he's still dead yeah and so uh, i was trying to make sure nobody would mess with what i did and it was so rare in comics you know i mean you had yeah. bucky in in marvel yeah. and, and pharaoh lad you know and gwen stacy you know those were the ones yeah that were... and and the thing is uh, they eventually came up with a undiscovered yeah. unknown twin brother oh give me a break yeah and then and then uh on top of that even later they they brought him back right. and so but that's i was long gone by then and, I, yeah, and i'll yeah, tell you course. what i did i don't even count those <laughs> yeah i don't think yeah. they count I, um, that's interesting though you know uh you you were mentioning the reveal to the black face uh that it was a, a black person underneath the mask um that kind of reminds me of that ec comics story from the 50s the judgment yes. day where I you read had the story. final panel uh was an inspiration that well I, it must have been in the back of my head somewhere uh -huh. uh, i mean um i thought that was a great story yeah uh, i think uh, yeah. joe orlando drew that didn't he say again i said i think joe orlando drew that or was it woody I, uh no it was joe orlando joe orlando sure. yeah 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 but i thought you know uh when i i don't i can't say that was in my mind when I was doing the Feral Lad thing, but now that you mention it, you know, I had read that story and that was yeah. a good one. You know, um, and it, it's, it's so affecting and, and the, the Feral Lad story is so affecting as well. And and uh, and uh, kudos to you again for being able okay. to come up with a story that has that kind of emotional range and, and also tension, uh, you know, there's a real slow build, uh, uh, it's incremental and, um, uh, you know, it was one of the stories that really, as a kid, I read it over and over and over again, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, that's that's how I felt about almost everything Stan did is, is mm -hmm. I cared desperately about those people, you know? Yeah. I mean, he, he, uh, he used to say, um, you know, his, his, his sound bite that he would do for every interview was heroes with problems, you know? Yeah. And one time I was with him and we were talking and, and I said, it's more than that, it's heroes with lives. And he says, yeah, but try explaining that to the Daily News. <laughs> and I said, gotcha. He said, no, you you, you do get it. He said, you, you understand it. That's what I'm going for. He said, yeah. but you have to, you know, learn. They understand heroes are problems. They have no problem. They get it. One um, of the things that, that, that you, the Pharaoh Lad saga had was just sort of all hands on deck feeling and the, the scale of it. And, and, you know, you look at, nowadays with movies like you know um infinity war and endgame and you where you look at just uh the crossover stuff on on crisis on the dc shows on the cw where it's like you know entire universes piling in and stuff like that those things were so satisfying to read and and i could see that coming from a young creator because that it was always like uh they never gave you enough of comic stories. Was, like, yeah, I was trying to do to comics I would like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and Answer. yeah, I always felt felt with the Legion, like I'd I'd buy uh, adventure comics and Legion superheroes. I would buy an issue because the cover was great. You know, yeah. I was like, wow, it's a good cover. And I read the stories tepid. You know, they never did anything. Right. And so I, I thought I thought, no, I, it, it can be done. Let's do it. And uh and I'll tell you, my here's my little uh, my little nose kiss to myself. Um, when I uh, started out, like Marvel Comics uh, was on the rise, yeah. they were selling great. And DC Comics, my 
the first issue of Superman sold 1.2 million copies, not because of me, nobody even knew I was there, but, but you know, that was the level at which Superman was going. It was over a million copies, well over a million copies, every wow. issue. Wow. Um, a lot of DC comics were doing really pretty well, but they were falling, slowly drifting down. My first issue of Adventure Comics with Superboy and the Leech of Superheroes had one of those postal statements of ownership in them. Are you familiar? Yeah. Every magazines always used to have to publish a postal statement of ownership to keep their second class mailing privileges. Once a year, you had to publish a postal statement of ownership. In that uh, ownership statement, uh, among other things, uh, you had to disclose uh, the average sales for the last uh, uh, 12 issues and also the sales of the uh, issue nearest to the filing date. Okay. So the average sales of Legion of Superheroes Venture Comics is about half a million. It's about 500,000. The issue closest to filing day was 503,000 or 8,000, something, you know, it's right around there. In the last issue I did of Adventure Comics and the Legion of Superheroes, they had a postal statement of ownership and it was selling half a million copies, 500,000. Now, why is that significant? Because every other DC comic book was plummeting. Superboy was catastrophic. Uh, Superman fell. I mean, everything was going way down. The kid held his own. Yeah. You know? And uh, uh, so, I mean, I feel like, I was like trying to do a pale imitation of Stan Lee, but I, 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 I did. I, I, I actually got some things that I wanted in there, I would like, and also at DC, one of the first questions I asked my editor, Mort Weisinger, I said, what about continuity? And he said, we don't do that. Yeah. No continuity here. And I said, okay. But then I realized I had the only book set in the future. I own the future, oh, you know? Yeah. And because that was my regular book. That was my regular sign. I did other ones too, but, but that was the one I, I did every month. And uh, so I owned the future. And I thought, well, I, I could do my own continuity and I wouldn't be interfering with anybody, you know? Mm -hmm. And I did it, and it wasn't like Mort didn't realize I was doing it, but he right. the book's selling, so he didn't care. And he said, oh, well, I'll let him go, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It, so I did, and so I had the continuity working for me too, and people liked that. They liked the, the fact that, you know, I introduced the character in one issue, and then he, they, they uh, came back different some other time, or, you know, I just, I had, if, if something happened, I remembered it and, and carried on with it. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you're right. And that's one of the things that made Marvel Comics so popular in, in the Silver Age uh, is that like a soap opera, you know, you wanted to keep up with what was going on with Peter Parker because things counted and girlfriends came and went and jobs came and went. But yeah. like DC, like you could have the same month uh, you have an Aquaman comic book published that same month. There, I remember there was one a Superman issue I had. And in, in the Aquaman that month, he's in Atlantis and it looks totally different than Superman's Atlantis. And you're like, yeah, why yeah, if exactly. it doesn't count, why do I care? If it doesn't, if it's not comprehensive, it's not immersive. Right? Exactly. And you don't exactly. care, you know, yes. um, it becomes a one-off. And then, yeah. And, uh, you know, if, if you, uh, you could read a hundred Superman stories in any order, it didn't matter. That's right. You know, but, but, uh, you know, no when, I, when I was... When I was a kid, I was I was I really wanted to know what happened to Spider-Man. I wanted I was desperate to get that next issue. That's right. And uh, another thing is, Marvel comics were revolutionary. I tried to do some of the things that Stan did, 
like uh, in Spider-Man, I never saw a hero launder his costume before. You know, <laughs> it's like, nice. what? Yeah. That was new, or get a cold, or have a, an injury, yeah. or, or, you know, try to pay the and, and, and all this stuff. And, and uh, it, it was also, DC Comics, every character starts out, he's already met the girlfriend who's the love of his life, he has a great job, he's, you know, uh, his, his life is a dream. You know, you never, you never, never any worry about paying the rent or anything like that. You know, uh, when Spider-Man started out, he didn't have a girlfriend at all. Yeah. Okay. And then after a while, he finally meets a girl, Betty Brand. Like, oh, that's going to be his girlfriend. Hell no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just like real life, you know, yeah. that kind of doesn't work out for strange reasons, but that doesn't kind of yeah. work out. And then there's another one, another one. And the whole time you think that he secretly wants, uh, what are, what's your face? Liz, yeah, Liz, Liz Allen, Liz. whatever her name is. And, uh, you know, uh, and then he ends up with the trophy girl, you yeah. know, and that, and that, that's all right. I, yeah, I can absolutely. Go. Yeah. You know, it, it's um, the consequences of it really matter. And, and that, and I think that that speaks to what Thanks. you're saying. And, and Pharaoh lad is the, is, is the perfect example because he did, um, he was dead for so long and he was famously dead in comics. Like, you yes. know, like that guy's famous for being dead. That's what he is. Um, do you, you know, saying that you wanted to be, um, you know, uh, uh, a new Stanley, or you know, following if Stanley was your North Star, yeah, um, I was. He he would soon introduce Black Panther uh, with Jack Kirby, uh, and make comic book history the first black superhero. And uh, yeah, and then, mine would have beat him by about three or four months. Yeah, but uh, you know, and then and when Marvel introduced the Black Panther, guess what? They didn't lose any distribution anyway. You know, right. I mean, they, 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 it was fine. You know, we, the world had grown up just this much by then. And, and, and the distributors weren't going to pull out of something that was selling just because, you know, uh, there was a black face among the crowd. Yeah. I mean, I, that was, that was the DC is pretty much always, it just had no courage, yeah. cowardly publishing, you know, uh, uh, I, I've heard, you know, I know a lot of, creative guys and i heard it again and again you know uh that that, that they wanted to do things and were told no and you know it, it's just well you don't do that you know oh that that that, that might not go over or you know that's risky you know? well tell you what stan took some risks Absolutely. stan jack steve all those guys took some risks and boy that worked out pretty well yeah sure did the um an interesting footnote um, I think is in the 50s, Dell Comics did publish uh, a black character, had his own comic book for just a few issues. I think it was just a handful of issues, maybe just two or three, but Lobo, um, L-O-B-O, yeah. Cowboy, um, which is a lot like, it looks like Quentin Tarantino just took the whole thing and turned it into Django. Um, yeah. <laughs> it looks exactly the same and everything. But that comic, um, uh, did not reach the newsstands uh, in a lot of uh, a lot of places. I south. know that. Yeah. Nixon, Nixon, yeah. Well, Western publishing was was uh, a little more in a position to experiment. First of all, they were huge, sure. and, and prosperous. Uh, second of all, they they owned the racks in many places for their yeah. golden books and so forth, and so they had outlets that they controlled. Oh. Uh, uh, and I guess they were testing the waters, and you know, and it didn't work out. Yeah, uh, but like I said, I think the world grew up a little bit by the time I was there, and I think that it, the world was ready. You know, you got a green people and blue people. Who cares? Sure, absolutely. And of course, uh, you know MLK and Rosa Parks, and and you know, oh, yeah. 
the time that uh, is contemporaneous with what you're talking about. Um, yeah, and and you know, and then I I figured there had to be a lot of a lot of young people like me. I was I I figured there got to be a lot of people who who you know are realize that this is a watershed. They're 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 they're, they're idealistic and and they're they're uh, you know, um, I don't know. I I I uh, um, I think that. Uh, we DC just had a habit of missing moments. It's, it's kind of no no wonder they they took a dive there. Yeah, yeah. All the bank robbers wore ties. I remember that as a kid. That really bothered me. Like every bank robber had a tie on. Like you know, like you, you could you know, like you could you could put a gun. You could steal stuff, but you you couldn't you couldn't loosen that tie. You know, like. But I'll tell you something about DC Comics. All right, this will give you the picture entirely. All right, when I went on my first business trip at age 14 to New York. My editor, Art Weisinger, he said, call me when you get to the hotel. So at the hotel, get in the room, call him. DC's offices were across the street, 51st Street on Lexington. And uh, I said, well, I'm here. Do you want me to come over? He said, no, stay there. He said, you cross the street. No, 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 no. He said, stay there. I'll come and get you. I'm like, why? It's right there. I can see it out my window. You know, anyway, uh, uh, so he does come. There's a knock on the door and I open the door and I'm wearing a jacket and a tie. Um, and I'm also a head taller than he is, even at that age. Yeah. And uh, uh, so he, he's looking at my tie tack and he looks up at me and he says, and I quote, you'll do. <laughs> you see, two things. Oh. Uh, one was... Well, three things. One was in those days, if you traveled or something like that, you always dressed up. Yeah. You, you know, if you were going to be in the, if you go downtown Pittsburgh, you're going to dress up because people have to look at you. You might as well look good. Right. So I naturally had a jacket in our time. Yeah. Two, um, you know, I was doing a business thing. And in those days, business meant you, you had to dress business. For sure. And, uh, and, and, um, and the thing is that Mort, uh, uh, his two fears were that he, I would open that door and I'd be some little tiny kid with a Charlie Brown t-shirt on and he would right. be embarrassed to walk me in to DC Comics. Right? Yeah. The other thing was that, uh, this is true, that DC back then and until 1977 had a rule. You could not enter the premises unless you had a jacket and a tie. Wow. Okay. They wouldn't let you in. If you ever see a picture of Neil Adams in a tie, it's, it's taken at DC Comics. Trust me. <laughs> the, the thing is, th that was a policy. Yeah. That, you couldn't end, enter there. And then in 1977, it might have been late 76, but I think it was 77, um, Carrie Bates and Marty Pasco yeah. decided to test the waters. And so they went up to DC Comics with a shirt, open collar. And a, and a jack, a, a sport gun, but open collar, no tie. And they got in. And it was the talk of the industry. Phones are ringing all over town. Yeah. Everybody said, hey, did you hear that? Pasco and Bates got in. Yeah. You know? And and uh, and it slowly started to break down. See, meanwhile, at Marvel, you come dressed to paint a house. Nobody there. You know, I mean, it was, it was fine. It was, it was I, I said, I you, you could dress any which way you wanted and, and nobody really was going to criticize you. In fact, it was almost the opposite. It was almost like the uniform was ratty jeans with holes in them and sneakers and t-shirts. You know? Yeah. 
it, I always think of Marvel as like almost like this Algonquin or like it is this hotbed for all these, you know, like I, I read about Fellini dropping by and I know it wasn't <laughs> like a, a, a bus station or anything, but people did go there to find out they, they were looking for something. Um, right. No, I think there. it was, you know, I mean, they expected a bunch of crazy people and they got them. Yeah. Yeah. What's um? There's so many things that happened on your Marvel watch. Again, you took over in bicentennial year, early '76, I think. Uh, uh, well, no, I I was hired as editor. I mean, uh, editor. You were editor, hired there at as editor in '76. Yeah, and then the first working day of January 1978, I I became editor in chief. Right, two years and, almost to the week. Right. Yes, pretty yeah. much, pretty much. I think it was it was a early January. I thought it was the first working day of January. When I started in '76, but I'm not sure of that. Um, but it was early January, for sure. And and then uh, the editor in chiefs, I started on January second. Right. We were closed on January first. Okay. And um, uh, that's and there had been like a five editors in four years right before you. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, people keep saying I'm the ninth editor of Marvel Comics. Where the hell do they get that? I don't know. I mean, I it was know. last Six. ninth editor in chief. And here's the deal. Stan never called himself editor-in-chief. He called himself right. editor. Now, mm -hmm. depending on whether or not you count him as editor-in-chief, there's okay. here, here are the rest. Right. It was Roy Thomas for two and a half years. It was um, uh, uh, Len Wein for eight months. There was Marv Wolfman for exactly a year. There was Jerry Conway for three weeks. Oh. And there was Archie Goodwin for 19 months. So oh, I'm, I'm, either sixth or, I'm either sixth or seventh, depending on whether or not you count Stan. Yeah, but but there was a big big turnover. There was there was um, uh, well when I, I was hired by Marv, mm -hmm. um, uh, Marv lasted another couple of months and they got rid of him, and then uh, uh, Jerry Conway took over. Like I say, he lasted three weeks and couldn't take it, yeah. and then Archie Goodwin came in and he never was he he yeah. he, uh, he was. Uh, you know he the other there's a lot of political crap going on with the other people archie everybody loved archie you know mm -hmm. so he, he was a calming influence the big problem archie had is that he had no patience whatsoever for dealing with the bean counters yeah. and the lawyers and the licensing people his eyes had glaze over and he would say perfectly reasonable things that a human being a writer or artist creative person would say yeah. and they come back with this this you know uh, bean counter bullshit and and it just frustrated him to death and um i was fortunate because i was the only guy the first guy who ever came in there who had had some training hmm. mort weisinger for all of the, he yelled at you a lot but but for all of that he taught me the business and the business of the business hmm. and so not only did i know the creative Areas from from Jack Adler right? and the in-house production and printing production. I learned about distribution and marketing and stuff. And I used to wonder why is Mort teaching me all this stuff. Yeah. And the fact is, his assistant told me eventually. He said he's, he's training you to have a job like his. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, I mean, I I had a good background. Also, he talked to me about the financials and, and the the financial business of the business. So when I came in there. I was, you know, familiar with the bean counters and could speak their language and, and, and uh, also knew how to get around, yeah. you know, just, you know, you, you, you don't get mad when they say stupid things. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you 
reason with them, but reason with them in a way that this is how we make money, or right. this is why it is good for us, or this is where this gets us. And, uh, and you know, I got amazing things done. Um, yeah. Well, and some of that just because the company was dying and the president of the company who hired me, I reported to him, I had nobody could overrule me but him. Um, he said, do anything you want, just try not to lose money. Well, do anything you want, pretty free hand. You know, yeah. so I did what I wanted. Yeah, and, and on your watch, uh, you know, I mean, Marvel had done so great in the 60s and 70s, uh, creatively speaking, uh, um, but the stuff that happened on your watch, uh, to me, was really um, just terrific. I mean, you know, Frank Miller on Daredevil, Chris Claremont, yeah. John Byrne on X-Men, uh, Walt Simonson on Thor, uh, Marvel fanfare, Marvel graphic novel, Death's Captain Marvel, Epic. Yeah. You, know, you can just yeah, go down the list. You know, a lot of really the most ambitious stuff. Um, and a lot of stuff that really resonates um, with the choices made for the MCU. You know, if you look at the stuff that the MCU is... is uh, a lot of the movies are based on the stuff that Claremont and you yeah. know, the Avengers guys and, and uh, you know, other people in my little... 10 year span there a lot of it they're 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 mining that those 10 years pretty well and uh uh yeah i mean i, I just want to say here thing that was something worked in my favor and that was that the rest of the business was dying marvel was pretty sick but everybody else was dying and the year i started charlton went out of business warren went out of business harvey stopped publishing archie went all reprint and on one day, DC canceled over 40% of their titles. One day. Yeah, the implosion. You should have seen the line of creators at my door the next day. Because we were that last hope, you know? Yeah. And um, so I was able to get some really good talent. Like I said, I had a pretty free hand. So I was able to um, uh, cherry pick the talent. And Archie had been editor-in-chief before me. And then he became a contract writer. And I got him to come back. Yeah, that was a godsend. And I think he was good for him too, because he was having trouble keeping up with being a contract writer. He was never fast. Uh, I got uh, Larry Hama, yeah, and Al Milgram from DC. Yeah, Warren was gone. Louise needed a gig, and I'd always been trying to get Louise. And when finally, you know, it was the kind of last option, she came, and and it would just kept kept happening. I got Carl Potts, and I got Bob Yansky, and Jim Salakrup, and all these tremendous yeah. editors and people who maybe didn't know me or were afraid of me they'd say well archie's there louise is there how bad could it be you know uh -huh. and so they started showing up for those guys and uh, so all of a sudden people. you got all the great editors there are and their great editors are getting all the great talent and and so we turned it around you know and uh my job mostly there was conducting the orchestra and, and trying to get better benefits i doubled the rates i doubled them again i kept increasing them i i got uh, uh, health insurance life insurance you do three jobs a year as a freelancer you get health and life insurance i got uh, um, uh, we paid for all materials pens pencils ink windsor newton brushes that cost a lot of money all that stuff we paid posting we paid phone bills you know it's the word spreads you can make money at mark you know, yeah. and, and so guys start start showing up. The best thing was the royalty plan because all of a sudden these guys are getting, they have a stake in what they do. Yeah. DC got their royalty plan going first. I had it approved on the day I was hired. And 
financial people kept nitpicking and weaseling around. And anyway, but so DC, when they announced theirs, I, I said, we have to do this now. Yeah. And uh, I had to actually go to the board because it was going to cost a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but we got it done. And, and uh, uh, we, uh, it, it, they expected that it would, if, we, if no sales improved, it, we'd lose three quarters of a million dollars off the bottom line. Mm. Uh, we lost two million off the bottom line. But guess what? That was the happiest two million they ever spent because the sales skyrocketed. Sure. Because we, because you know, all the great creators came and you know, all the great creators kicked ass. Yeah, they and, really uh, And we had the best editors and just, just great people. It's yeah. just great. It really is pretty extraordinary. There, there, there's also um, kind of some quirky stuff that happened. You know, uh, I, I thought it was fascinating. The Casablanca Records. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they had a plan to make a movie. Um, yep. Garrick, I think, right? Well, what happened was, yeah, uh, we had this brilliant woman who was also, by, I was a vice president, so was she. And, and she was in charge of, uh, she was co company counsel and she was business affairs. And, right. and uh, she was always looking for opportunities. And she went to Casablanca and tried to talk them into doing like what like the archies or josie and the pussycats like like we would create a fictional band and then they would use studio musicians and produce records and you know yeah and, like, and so we created a character called the dazzler who would be our musician uh and uh so they they like that and they they said uh, remember this is the disco era okay give me a oh break. yeah uh, <clears throat> the the uh they like that and they what they wanted was they wanted to uh to introduce the concept with a half hour animated TV special. Okay. And they want, for some reason, they wanted this uh, to a story in a terrific hurry, you know? And, and so, I mean, I have, I have the president and, and our, our Hollywood rep and everybody telling me, spend whatever you want, you know, get, just get it done. Just get, hire Harlan Ellison. I said, <laughs> they want this, they want this Monday. You, you, Harlan Ellison would deliver it two years from now. Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> And the best guy is Archie. He can never do it over a week. Yeah. So anyway, it was kind of nobody else. So I did. Yeah. And uh, I, I wrote the best I could. It was difficult because I had to write in voice roles for everyone who was on, uh, was their client uh, yeah. that, that was assigned to uh, Casablanca, which included Robin Williams, Rodney Dangerfield, Sonny, uh, no, Cher, and uh, uh, Donna Summer, the Village People, uh, uh, Kiss and Lenny and Squiggy. Hello. <laughs> so, all right. Anyway, I write this story and I'm trying to figure out how you're going to fit this in half an hour. And when I gave it to them, they said, this isn't an animated special. This is a, this is a feature film. Right. And so our genius, uh, uh, aggressive uh, business affairs lady, she gets on a plane and she goes to the Cannes Film Festival. And somehow she wangles her way in to see Bo Derek. This is a few weeks after 10 came out and was right. sweeping the nation. And Bo read my story and she, she liked it. And she said, I want to do this. I want to play this character. And, um, and so uh, we, I, for a couple of weeks there, we, we were in heaven. We thought we won the lottery, you know, yeah. because every, the studios were bidding to get Bo Derek. They're, I mean, I can't, I mean yeah. they're kidding, bidding to, because she wanted to do this. She was attached. So, getting a bidding award one here. Then she decides that her husband, John Derrick, has to direct. Well, John Derrick was famously over budget, late and bad. And yeah. all the studios dropped out. And that's how the project ended. And then shortly after that, uh, uh, Neil Bogart died and that was the end of it. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, from uh, Casablanca, from yeah. the records. Um, what a strange, uh, uh, what a strange trip uh, for that character, and and it became a character, you know, with some, I mean, with her own series for. Yeah, we, so we went ahead and published the comic book, and it yeah. did fine. You for know, years, we were out yeah. selling Superman by sixty thousand copies a month. With that, Dazzler? Are you kidding me? And she turned uh, for anybody that's not uh, uh, attuned, so to speak, to Dazzler. She uh, is a mutant. She uh, hung out with the X Men for a little while. Like, yeah, it's always really, you know, Chris was a good barometer. If he liked it, you know, it was usually was good. You know? Especially female so, you know, you know, the fact character. she was a mutant, he's like, I, I get to do the mutants. And like, no, you yeah. don't. You know, <laughs> and uh, but he was like, Rumpf, you know, yeah. and but then he read it and he liked it. He saw a possibility. He wanted to use her in the X-Men. I said, sure. Yeah, so go for it. You know, and, and, and so I think uh, her first appearance might have been in the X-Men. I'm not sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but it, yeah. Absolutely. But anyway, uh, it was uh, it was kind of fun. And uh, he when when Chris liked it, you know, it was. Good. Yeah, I think it was like Dazzler. I mean, I think it was like X-Men 130 something. 130. 33 yeah, I don't know. but uh she turns music into light or sound into light and dazzles people which is really good to yeah. see that one to see that coming. yeah <laughs> yeah so i anyway we you know i we, we did chris a couple times you know surprised me by liking something that i did <laughs> that's funny <laughs> but i was always happy if you liked it because i thought well i've got a chance sir that's great and then you know of all those things is there you know, what are you proudest of from your Marvel uh, editor in chief run specifically? Is there uh, any of those things that you would? Well, I would say it's the creator creator benefits and rights and stuff like that because I, you know, when I came in there, uh, there was guys getting thirty five dollars for a complete page pencil and ink. There, there, huh. there was you know, and that's all they got. No benefits, no nothing. And you know, yeah. and and uh, a, a few years later, we had millionaires. We had people making literally over a million dollars, and we everybody was doing well. Everybody was prosperous uh, because at Marvel, I mean, even when I started, uh, every Marvel book sold over a hundred thousand copies. Hmm. Okay, well, all of a sudden things are taking off. X Men's up way over half a million, three three quarters of a million, whatever it was. Um, lots of the books were up in the high hundreds of thousands, and uh, and even the, the the lesser ones. You know, we're all over a hundred thousand, and uh, so we were. You know, we 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 just turned it around. We we got people interested. And we got it going, and and uh, you know, and now PS, the DC is not going to let that stand. They're trying to fight back with Watchmen, and they get Miller to come over and do Dark Knight for them and stuff. And it was great. It was a great time for the whole industry. Yeah, and uh, because we, as the direct market grew, there was more and more venues for the little guys. Yeah. So, so you know, all of a sudden there's Cerebus and there's Elf Course and there's Distant Soil. And there's the Ninja Turtles. Yeah. You know, and 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 we helped build the venue for them, and we'd help them out if they, you know, if they ask us, we'd help them. Yeah. And uh, we helped First Comics get started. We helped uh, Pacific Comics get started. Shane's brother showed my office said, "We want to. We're a pub distributor already. Ready. We want to publish." I said, "Let me tell you how." Yeah. And. Uh, uh, we we, uh, we really tried to I, I said we're trying to save this dying industry you know let's turn it around and then we did and I said the more the merrier you know uh, they said why are you selling first comics to start I said because if we can't beat them on a level field we don't deserve it number one and number two they'll segment the market they'll do stuff that we wouldn't think of they'll you know it'll there'll be more it'll just build it it'll come yeah 
Yeah, and comic book shops, you know, I remember walking into comic book shops in 87, 88, 89, uh, and just getting so excited. There was so much stuff. Uh, just, oh, yeah. You, know, you didn't uh, know what, every, what every to pick. You, you know, yeah. you went out and got a paper route so you get some more money and buy some more comics. Yeah, it's kind of like when HBO or Netflix or, you know, it was like when people first discovered this library of, you know, options and things like that. It, it comic book store felt like that. Uh, you know, back then, oh, um, yeah. and then um, you know, as far as uh, Stan, you know, you mentioned Stan quite a bit, and and uh, you know, I interviewed Stan, you know, at least a, a dozen times, and and wouldn't say that I knew him, but uh, certainly was around enough to feel his energy and, and know the influence he had on people and, and people like me too. Um, but you know, when you think about him, what do you what do you think now is is Stan's greatest contribution, would you say? Would, you know, when you think about well, I, legacies. Steve Englehart, as I said before, when Stan started working on the Marvel Universe, he really revolutionized a lot of things. And Steve Englehart uh, had, had a line about Stan once. I'm going to quote him. I think I've got it right. Uh, he's referring to comic book writers. He said, Stan is the father of us all. Mm. Yeah. It's true. It's yeah, so I thought that's it's true because he changed the whole picture. I mean, the story there is that is that they've been publishing since 1939, you know, yeah. uh, and Marvel was never a contender. It was, you know, timely, timely Atlas, yeah. Marvel, whatever they called it. It wasn't that it was just a, you know, uh, it was an also ran. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, Uncle Martin told Stan two things in, in 1960. <clears throat> um, uh, number one was that, uh, I guess he had been playing golf with the guys from DC or something. And, and they told him, you know, uh, they, they had Superman and Batman, but then they told him they had this, this newfangled thing called Justice League. It seemed to be going pretty well, you know, a group of heroes, you know? And, um, so he told Stan that. And he also told Stan, oh, by the way, I'm going to close down the comics publishing in a couple months because we're just not making it, you know. And uh, uh, he was the owner. Stan called him Uncle Martin. He wasn't really his uncle. It was a relation by marriage. But, but at any rate, um, so basically Stan, you know, Uncle Martin didn't care. He was going to, so Stan decided to swing for the fences. Why not, you know? And so he did the Fantastic Four and, started doing the marvel universe yeah that's what it caught fire you know and uh so i think and his he the way he explained it to me is is the pretty much the same words i used before is is he said i said i'm not going to write for kids i'm going to write comics i would like to read and he and he did and yeah. um you know sent a lot of us to the dictionary of things with words like paroxysm and you know yeah. Just, he wasn't he wasn't gonna hold back he's swinging for the fences yeah. and of course he took artists like jack kirby and steve ditko who yeah. were considered third string they couldn't get work at dc okay mm -hmm. these guys were considered third string eh, nobody wants it you know yeah. that's why they did more to charlton and marvel and, or, you know okay so he took these third string artists who by the way were really geniuses terrific, you know yeah. but he gave them the platform mm -hmm. he, by by the the swing for the fences mentality that came in here all of a sudden 
the full force and fury of Jack Kirby is unleashed. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Before you know it, you've got a blue area on the moon, you've got Atlantis, and you've got, and Atlantis is the same in every book. And, and you've got, uh, you know, all this stuff happening. Rainbow Ditko Bridge in this, between. This, this insightful things he did with Spider-Man. And, and then, of course, all the rest of the guys, too. Dick Ayers and, 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 and the, the Don Heck and lots of those guys. And sure. they, they, they did great stuff. And, and I, I always say that the, the secret is simple. You tell a good story, you tell it well. Mm-hmm. And it's been the same for 40,000 years. So they started telling good stories. And, of course... You got Stan, Jack, Steve, Dick, those guys, they told it well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's just fantastic. Well, uh, uh, you know, the legacy of Marvel Comics uh, and the, the stature of it and, and all the things that's done in Hollywood and beyond, uh, none of those things would look the way they do today if it wasn't for your tenure and, and, uh, and the things that happened on your watch, you know? So as a fan- that like I said, really- I had the greatest people. Yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it's a it's impressive accomplishment, you know. The, uh, it's the it's the comics that made me fall in love with comics, so I appreciate it, and it's really oh, nice to you. talk to. You. And uh, do you think that Brad Pitt would make a good Corvac? Don't you think? Don't you think? <laughs> um, I, I'm not a casting director. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I think he could probably do anything he wanted. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. We might have to have you back for a whole show on the Secret Wars, though. You know, because I, I okay. might that might be worth the whole show, especially if they. I think they should just make it the movie. It's the perfect way to introduce the Fox characters. Well, they might they might do it because uh, a while back they uh, I got a call from Marvel and they they wanted me to sign a work for hire because they didn't have any paperwork saying they own the Beyond or the title, the, the black suit, any of that stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah, because I I don't know why they lost it or I didn't sign anything. I'm not sure. I was editor in chief and I thought I'd be there forever. Maybe I never got around to signing. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, I I said okay, sure I'll sign it. And they said no, we'll pay you. <laughs> and I said, you don't have to pay me. I I work for hire. I'll I'll sign whatever you send it. Yeah. And the guy insisted on pay me and they actually paid me ten thousand dollars to sign my name. They wanted that. And I, I had friends saying, oh, you should have held out for more. I said, why? I would have done it for free. You know, what do you mean? No, that's okay. I mean, basically, the guy said, take the money, stupid. Yeah. And I said, well, since you put it that way, you know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, 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 all right. Well, what, what, why would I tell you that? It, the, the, the answer is that when they make a movie, they need a clean chain of title. Yeah. They may have to make sure that every button is buttoned. And I was an unbuttoned button. Yeah. And they, they were determined to get it done. And they hadn't bothered with it three years before, you know. And, and so... To me, that says the movie's in the works. And when I asked the guy about that, the, the vice president I was talking to, he he, he kind of gave me a hedgy answer. He was like, well, I'm not supposed to tell you that, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think cool. he just did, pal. Exactly. But uh, anyway, like I, I don't know. I, I hope so. I hope they're doing it. There's a lot of legal hurdles to leap over there because of the rights issues with the various characters and stuff. But uh, yeah, I hope it happens. It'll be fun. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that, uh, that the... Uh, the authority of a transaction that, you know, it, it gives them uh, a documented uh, a chain, as you say, you know. Uh, yeah, chain of sure. title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Secret Wars would be great just to get, uh, and it'd be a great way to, you could even bring back Tony Stark with Robert Downey Jr. because, you know, anybody you wanted um, as uh, as the characters to, to put it into that great template of that, that, uh, yeah. that story, so. Um, but like I said, well, that's a whole other show. But oh yeah, Jim a lot Shooter, to talk about there. 
I just uh, I just really appreciate your time. Uh, the pride of Pittsburgh. Thanks for coming on the show and uh, thanks for uh, your candor and thanks for filling us in on Pharaoh Lad. You know, it's uh, it's an interesting uh, moment in comics history. Do you have any regrets about Pharaoh Lad or do you feel good about uh, um, the way it all went down? Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry that I didn't get to do it my way, but, uh, you know, it was what it was. And I, I did the best I could. And I don't, I don't regret anything. Yeah. Well, I read it 5,000 times and I liked it. <laughs> so, well, thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning into Mindspace. You just heard Jim Shooter uh, in conversation with Jeff Boucher. Jim Shooter talking about his uh, cosmically spanning career as Marvel um, editor-in-chief and also as a writer for comics at Marvel and DC. Uh, all the artists he's worked with and times he's succeeded and times he's been stymied and censored <laughs> by the yeah. comics industry. Uh, the highlight of the discussion was definitely uh, talking about Pharaoh Lad um, yeah. and Shooter's endeavors to introduce a, a Black teenage character in the 60s that was uh, kind of stomped on. And I found the DC quote is very interesting in pertinence to uh, your biography, Jeff, because if they say, you know, if we make this character Black, it'll never get distribution in the South. We can't do this in the South you were a kid in the south you know and and this was a comic that meant so much to you how do you think in an alternate universe where they let it happen how do you think you would have been impacted yeah it's interesting i you know um i i came to the story uh it was reprinted in the 70s so i i didn't see it when it was when it first came out because i wasn't mm -hmm. born um, it was, I think it came out in 66 or 65. I actually can't remember off the top of my head right now. You know, I was responding to the social messaging in comics. You know, there, there was a lot of like Jack Kirby's patriotic liberalism, which is kind of interesting because patriotism and, and liberal um, points of view in politics don't necessarily naturally fit together in most people's perception these days. Um, but they did for, for, Jack Kirby in the years after World War II. And, um, you know, that spirit that came in comics, uh, I, you know, it, it really affected my worldview as a kid. You know, I, I became, you know, Stan Lee's message of inclusion, like he's always talking about, you know, uh, the problem of bigotry. And he's always talking about, um, you know, this sort of unified, egalitarian kind of, um, worldview and that I think that's what was coming across in, in Jim Shooter when he's talking about that story he, when he was writing it when he's 13 or 14. Um, you know I think if, if I had seen that story with a black character I would have liked it just fine just the way I liked Black Panther a few you know which I was reading mm -hmm. and Black and Black Lightning Black all the black characters had that black in their name <laughs> um, except for um, the Falcon thankfully. Um, but that, that stuff really resonated with me and like it was part of my worldview of what America was. I saw America as uh, being a place for all people and being mm -hmm. strong because of its diversity and, and overcoming things, uh, you know, the differences between people. But, um, you know, the, the Pharaoh Lad story affected me so much because he 
just the tragedy of it you know it was like mm-hmm. a, it was like a, a James Dean movie you know like <laughs> you 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 cared for this this martyred teen who you know went before his time you know so it had that kind of like dead man's curve it had like a a, a teen tragedy kind of uh, aura to it that that's what affected me and if he had been black um you know i mean if he the characters in legion superheroes are they're from different planets so he, even if mm-hmm. he was black he would have been um an african like the black panther or african-american like falcon so his cultural stuff would have been different um but yeah because uh, you mentioned it takes place in the very far far future yeah and, and all the members are from different planets and he's from yeah. another planet um but uh yeah I, I think it would have affected me probably a little you know probably affected me just the same if not somehow more maybe yeah I have I have definite childhood memories of of books kind of like that that you know, they're the kinds that you read when you're growing up and then they they do take a dark, mature turn and, you know, involve teenagers and things like war and sacrifice. I remember when the Harry Potter books started to get like that, that was really tough to kind of deal with and was maybe a bit of a coming of age moment. I know the Percy Jackson books took a turn like that. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. yeah that I know, you know, lots of people my Star age when you, Star Wars yeah. you know, Empire Strikes Back is much darker than Star Wars you know mm-hmm. yeah I was thinking and specifically in terms of like teens dying like oh, that see. being a huge kind of wake-up call that is you know I guess validating in terms of what you feel is your growing emotional maturity and responsibility and uh growing uh sense of obligation to the people you care about and you know social causes like you said um coupled with you know the idea of sacrifice that's presenting itself really in the to you know the first time (laughs) yeah yeah i remember reading separate piece you know in high school and being really affected by it you know someone young dying in it you know um so yeah it's it definitely is part of that uh the literature um the awakening of a person and their coming of age, both as a as a as a as a person and as a reader and things like that. But uh, mm-hmm. quite an interesting guy, Jim Shooter, and um, yeah, he, I think a- it's also interesting in terms of like just um, historical coincidences. Like you mentioned, the one between Eleanor Rigby and Silver Surfer. Um, when I was looking up the death of Pharaoh Lad, it came out the same year as Outsiders. Oh wow! Oh no. Which is also which is fascinating to me because it, it, that is also famous for being a very sobering book, but also written by an extremely young teenage author. That's a really good observation. I had no idea that that book came out that early. I thought it came yeah. out much for some reason. That's really interesting. Yeah, I I wonder if there was just something in the air about you know writers as teens and and being tuned into kind of the the social condition of teenage America that allowed you know or encouraged these books to come out at the same time like well, something in the water Martin might have yeah. been on people's mind as well you know with the civil rights movement um, and oh and yeah Vietnam, and Vietnam yeah. as well um but also things like you know Elvis died in his first movie it's the only movie he died in which is uh 
uh, Love Me Tender, you know, there was this teen tragedy, this, you know, Gone Too Soon, James mm-hmm. Dean, uh, Dead Man's Curve, and um, with with Pharaoh Lad, he, he seemed pretty sentimental, but mm-hmm. I don't know about the, um, what Jim had in mind, and I mean, he's, he's, if he's 13, like, uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's just sort of fascinating that he could do that at that age, you know. But there's something about it being focused very young mm-hmm. on one thing and being kind of obsessive about it. Because I was like that with journalism, and, and it got me ahead of everybody for a while. Because if you start early, you get a jump start on people. I also was very tall, so people thought I was older than I was. He had a, that to his advantage as well. And uh, dealing in a time when people can't see you. I mean, the fact he could write for write Marvel, Com- I mean, write for DC Comics. And not and not have the guy know how, how old he was is kind of mm-hmm. hysterical. Like uh, I did that with my one of my early stories, UPI. I was writing for them. They thought I was a senior, not a freshman. Oh um, yeah. But at least I I could sound like a grown up. I mean, I was. How did was, they How did they think you were a senior? Did you ever lie? Well, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they caught they I actually you know in a, it was a passive dishonesty, but it was um, okay. <laughs> They called the newsroom of the school paper and said, they asked for somebody and I said, he's not here. They asked for somebody else. I said, she's not here. They said, are there any seniors there? And I said, well, hold on. And I put them on hold, thought about it and said, hi, you're looking for a senior? I'm Jeff. And then just went from there. So I didn't say I was a senior. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I just took the place of one. So the truly Shakespearean wordplay. Yeah, exactly exactly yeah but the and it's like that almost famous thing you know uh with cameron crow uh jim shooter has that times 10 and jim and you know stan lee started when he was 17 he was mm-hmm. his first job was getting sandwiches for jack kirby and joe simon you know um and filling their ink pots and stuff like that oh, wow. um, well but a different time but that was a good one um i think uh i'll be interested to see what people think of the interview I know some people will probably think that uh, we should have gotten some more controversial stuff, but we can always have them back. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We got Bo Derek in there. I didn't expect that. I actually, I read as I was, I was looking up Dazzlers, you were speaking. I, I think that the, some of the creators originally intended her to look more like Grace Jones and the Casablanca film department was like, uh, we prefer Bo Derek, <laughs> more marketable. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of remember something about that. Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting time. They also, that was one of the first, I remember they had a comic book cover, it was a photograph, not one of the first, they had been done a few times, but Marvel hadn't done that. But they had a woman posed as, as, as Dazzler on one of the covers uh, in this tight outfit. And I always wondered who she was. Mm. It was not Bodera. Yeah. So I'm going to go find out. I'll find out. Definitely. We should revisit her. Her powers seem very cool. Yeah, and she had roller skates. We didn't even get it. I know. And they looked like like disco ball roller skates. Like they were covered in mirrors and she has like a disco ball pendant. I thought she looked like, like Laura Branigan. You know, you know that singer? Oh yes, absolutely. Love her. Gloria. Yeah. If you ever if you're ever looking for something to watch and you can't find anything, I recommend it's if you uh there's an episode of Chips. Uh okay. that stands for California Highway Patrol. And Ponch and John, they 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 meet Laura Branigan and she sings Gloria, I think three times. They find a reason for her to sing that song three times in the span of like one episode mm-hmm. and once on roller skates. 
<laughs> That's great. I think the show's the show's gone on too long, hasn't it? If I'm I'm doing Laura Brannigan with roller shades, I'm sorry. Have a um, a good week, everybody. Thanks for joining us here at Mindspace. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the interview with Jim Shooter. Uh, let us know what you think of it. And join us here next week and tell your friends and let's all move into the future. Thank you.